Quick, what year is this? But did you know that you really have two skins? The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. This is an egg. That's an atomic explosion. And this is you. Over here are the ones who'd rather talk than play. Welcome back to Long Story Short. I'm Chris. I'm here with my wife. The infamous Leah. And this is the third installment of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. This here is Carol at the Dawn of War, Part 2. When Carol II returned from Istanbul with a Turkish alliance in one holster and a Soviet friendship in the other, Miklos Horthy and the rest of Hungary backed the fuck down, forgetting there was ever an uproar. As a result, Hitler's scapegoat for invading Romania slipped away, and he turned his attention back toward Poland, with the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on August 23rd, marking an agreement between Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia to jointly invade the Polish plains and split the country down the middle, doing with its pastures and Jews whatever each side pleased. Both Hitler and Stalin knew the fact was temporary, that war would come between their nations while both men were still able-bodied, but Stalin didn't know it would be so soon, barely two years after Ink touched parchment. The worst part about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, however, was its implications. That Romania and Turkey alike, two fiercely independent, neutral, peace-preferring nations, were now attached by proxy to Nazi Germany and the Axis powers, the very nations they sought protection from in the first place. There was to be no invasion of their lands so long as the pact endured, but this also meant that any imperial action by Hitler's Germany, or by Stalin's Russia for that matter, was attributable to Romania and Turkey in kind. They were accomplices in waiting, attached to the two most bloodthirsty nations on the planet, and little could they foresee in all of human history, first by way of desperation, and secondly, by way of association. When Carol II first heard of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, he fell to the floor, stricken with anxious shaking, he should have been prefaced with a, are you sitting down, kind of courtesy, but hey, maybe they didn't have that trope in Romania yet. In classic Carol II fashion, however, he started to think of ways to play the two imperial nations off one another, and how to weasel out of his affiliations altogether. As Kalinescu told him, Germany is the real danger, an alliance with it is tantamount to a protectorate, aka, we're guilty by association so long as we're under Hitler's thumb. And he concluded, only Germany's defeat by France and Britain can ward off the danger. So that was the plan. Carol II dispatched Prime Minister Kalinescu to Paris to meet with the French Foreign Minister Adrien Thierry. Thierry? Thierry? I think. I don't know. The French... Well, no, because think Louis Thoreau. Right. To meet with French Foreign Minister Adrien Thierry. Get the... Guy Thierry. Guy Thierry? Guy Thierry. Also he was meeting with Flavortown associate Guy Fieri. <laughs> French foreign minister Adrian Guy Fieri <laughs> and explained their situation, supplementing the Romanian sob story with a tween angst ultimatum that they will set their oil fields ablaze should Hitler invade Romania to ensure that the Axis cannot have their war machine. 
At the same time that Kalinescu was assuaging Guy Fieri, <laughs> uh, Romania's foreign minister, Grigori Gafencu, who looks like if Tommy Lee Jones was a dyslexic undertaker. He's not? <laughs> While Grafencu was in Berlin with his German counterpart, Joachim von Ribbentrop, playing the role of gracious loyalist, expressing Carol II's supposed respect for Adolf Hitler, his supposed distaste for the Western pacifists, and his supposed desire to increase oil exports to Germany. Now, supposed implies that he's lying. Nailed that <laughs> nail on the hammer with your hammer. So, was he fibbing? Oh, he fibbing. Uh-huh. Uh, when Gafenku returned from that butter-up session, he visited Germany's ambassador to Romania, Wilhelm Fabricius. Fabri- Fabricius? Fabri- Fabricius? Fabricius? Is it C-I? Fabricius? Yeah. Wilhelm Fabric, I-E-S. Fabricius. Wilhelm, Fabric- Fa- <laughs> Wilhelm Fabricius in Bucharest sang that Carol II would remain neutral should Hitler invade Poland, but as a condolence, he'd be willing to increase oil exports to Germany, suggesting a generous increase of 450,000 tons a month. And, like a seasoned dealer of pre-owned automotives, Gefenku said he could guarantee that amount if Wilhelm Fabricius gifted Carol II some modern German aeroplanes, which he said Carol II was an admirer of. At the same time as this meeting, Carol II was visiting with the brand ambassador of the Luftwaffe, the attaché of the German Air Force, reinforcing his cover story as an aeronautics enthusiast, as well as buttering up the attaché with congratulatory remarks on Hitler's recent diplomatic success, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Little did he know, though, that the small print of the pact included a continuance of the Polish split all the way south through Europe, including terms for divvying up Romania, with the Bessarabian region going to the Soviet Union, hence why Stalin was so nonchalant in accepting Carol II's meager border condition for their alliance. The Air Force gambit worked, by the way, and Wilhelm Fabricius... Why don't you just just call him Wilhelm? And Wilhelm Fabricius was able to arrange a gift of a couple recently outmoded test planes such as the high-wing Messerschmitt BF-163 recon plane, the low-wing Messerschmitt BF-109 fighter, the backbone of the Luftwaffe's offensive force, and the twin-engine Dornier Doe 215 light bomber, all of which were sent to Industria Aeronautica Romana in Brasov, the Romanian aeronautic industry, to be reverse-engineered into the first Romanian Air Force. How do you spell Luftwaffe? Uh, L-U-F-T? W-A-F-F-E. Luftwaffe. 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 So, do they know that their name sounds almost like they're going to say Airwaffle? I don't know how you say waffle in German, but, like, it sounds Waffeln. like Luftwaffel. Waffeln. Luftwaffel. Airwaffle. Flying waffles. Flying waffles. Delicious. Of course, without the money or the mind power of the German engineers who invented this new breed of airplane... The Romanian reproductions were rather low quality and cost inefficient, with most reworks being based around the cheaper BF-163 recon plane, refitting it as a wannabe fighter. They were able to recreate the uh, BF-109 fighter in the IAR-80, a low-wing fighter comparable to the British Hawker Hurricane, which, though sparse in number, became the backbone of Romania's Royal Air Force, though they were to be used more as means of delivering airstrikes than as means of tangling with enemy fighters. 
When Nazi Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, followed by the Soviet Union from the east two weeks later, Romania did remain neutral, offering asylum to Polish bureaucrats who fled their way. During this influx of well-dressed refugees, however, a uh, great number of exiled legionnaires slipped back into Romania, and among them was Horia Sima. Hey! Kudrin. Hey! What was it? Horseman. Horseman. Yeah. Or, new, new name, Horio Speedwagon. Nice. Horio <laughs> Speedwagon. I like that. Thank you. Uh, Horio Speedwagon was Corny Kudrenu's successor, who had taken refuge in Bavaria. I'd briefly mentioned him before, when he waged terror with the Iron Guard during Corny's initial incarceration. Uh, Kalinescu cracked down on the Legion soon after and sent their top dogs running for the hills, but now they had come back. Born July 3rd, 1907, Horia Sima, a.k.a. Horio Speedwagon, (laughs) looked like the young David Strathern never had any interests. In October 1927, while a student of philosophy at the University of Bucharest, Sima joined the freshly formed Iron Guard and was posted to the Banat region, a riparian watershed straddling uh, Romania's west and Serbia's east, centered by the city of Timosora. In these pastoral lands, Sima led one of the legion's major branches of peasant uprisings in the early 1930s. In 1935, he was promoted to commander of Timosora and the surrounding lowlands, quickly rising to become Corny's right-hand man. And when Corny was imprisoned in later 1938, Horio's speedwagon seized the <laughs> reins. When Corny and the death student squads were assassinated by Carol II's order in The Night of the Vampires, Sima tried to organize a counterattack, but most of the Legion's leaders shriveled up or were arrested, and those still free fled to Bavaria by way of Yugoslavia. Sima followed them there to continue planning his revenge, fixated on the idea of a coup to dethrone Carol II. But by this time, in early 1939, Hitler had made his oil deal with the Romanian king, and when word of the coup slipped to German officials, the Gestapo, Hermann Goering's division of secret police, raided the homes of the Legion refugees and took them prisoner. Only a few escaped their clutches, and among these few was Horio's Speedwagon. Yeah! So basically, they had German support up until... Until they fucked him over? Yeah. Rightfully so. I mean, like, good that they did. The good that they, you know. But, like... Sema no longer became relevant, and an overthrow was now counterproductive rather than productive, so they arrested him. Or they tried to, but he he escaped. Uh, When the gates opened in September, allowing Polish runaways into Bucharest... Sima forged and bribed his way back into the capital to hide in plain sight while he ruminated on revenge, redirecting his ire towards the Trigger Man, the master manipulator who had orchestrated the complete dismantling of the Legion and the Iron Guard, the man who was now Romania's Prime Minister, Armand Kalinescu. My boy. My boy. Hey, uh, I just want to say that the reason that Horio probably got out is because he's so slick and loose. Because... He's a whore. <laughs> semen? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I guess he could be horse semen. Horse semen? Horse semen. Oreo Speeman. Oreo Speeman. He's just, we're <laughs> just more and more names. What an unfortunate name. For an unfortunate man. Yep. Two days after Hitler invaded Poland, Great Britain and France both declared war on Nazi Germany. Carol II asserted his further neutrality on the flimsy fact that France's mobilized forces were still idling on their own side of the Maginot Line, that no war between the Axis and Allies had actually yet begun, and thus Romania had no need yet to start beating the drum. 
Again, this balancing act of Carol II's was keeping Romania legitimately neutral, with true motives indiscernible by both parties, hiding behind technicalities to delay the inevitable picking of sides, waiting to see which way the wind would blow. Carol II even went so far as funneling Poland's runaway bureaucrats to the port city of Kostanta on the Black Sea, which was acting like a reverse Casablanca, shipping refugees through friendly Istanbul to Marseille in southern France so they could regroup on Germany's western front and continue the fight from there. Per Hitler's demands, Carol II was supposed to be interning these Polish runaways under house arrest at least, but Carol II played the role of Captain Louis Renault and turned his back on the obvious flouting of these rules, thereby gifting the Allies key Polish personnel who would have otherwise surely been killed. So he did a good thing. Good. One good thing. Out of a bunch of bad things. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't quite offset it. Carol too was, whether he realized it or not, finally picking a side. Kalinescu's preaching had won out, and, at least while the threat of the Third Reich still loomed heavy, Carol too had become more anti-fascist than he was nationalist. And as much as he wanted to remain neutral, he was actively aiding the Allies, whereas he was only reluctantly aiding the Axis. Kalinescu had shown Carol II the light, and like any good advisor's narrative arc, that meant it was time for Kalinescu to be destroyed. If not for Carol II to take his mantle in a vengeance mission, then only to see that nothing good can exist forever. After the murder of Prime Minister I.G. Duca in December 1933, Kalinescu told the press, the Iron Guard is not a movement of public opinion, but rather an association of assassins and foul profaners of tombs. Nearly six years later, on September 21st, 1939, while en route to his office in Bucharest, Prime Minister Armand Kalinescu's car was ambushed by nine legionnaires, cutting him off in the street and opening fire. Over 20 bullets passed through the Prime Minister, while another dozen found his bodyguard and driver. While the bodyguard ultimately survived, Kalinescu and his driver were killed instantly. Well, there's his downfall. It's a joke. You can't come back from 20 bullets. 50 Cent only got shot nine times. That's why he's still here. I was going to mention 50 Cent, too. That's funny. Get out of my Is head. he the only one who got shot? <laughs> Ever? <laughs> the only one that we heard about a thousand fucking times. Because it was like, guys, I got shot nine times. And it's like, that is very impressive, but you don't need to tell us all the time. It's he- a real testament to aim. 50 <laughs> Cent gets shot nine times and lives. JFK gets shot, shot three times and dies. Yeah, it's true. I mean, well, this is a different joke, but I mean, uh, so a vegan, a CrossFit person, and 50 Cent walks into a bar. You know this because all of them told you what they did. Vegans don't eat meat, CrossFitters CrossFit, and 50 Cent got shot nine times. That was a bad joke. I should stick to my quips. I understand the concept of the joke. Yeah. I feel like introducing uh, that the bar is dark, the lights are turned off, and yet you still know who's entered because they've all mentioned who they are. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good also, I do CrossFit, and I love it, just saying. All right, anyway, continue. Uh, the genius behind the black monocle was dead, and with him went Carol II's strongest advocate for the Allies. The nine legionnaires responsible, comprised of Corny Codreno's trial lawyer, five students, a draftsman, a mechanic... A draftsman? Yes. <laughs> a mechanic and a photographer, calling themselves Razbunatori, a.k.a. The Avengers, fled to a nearby radio station where they took the studio DJs hostage 
at gunpoint and tried to broadcast a victorious boast about killing the Prime Minister in hopes of inspiring a revolution. But a waltz had already been set to play, and you know the joke, how many blank does it get to screw on a light bulb? Well, a trial lawyer, five students, a draftsman, a mechanic, and a photographer couldn't figure out how to interrupt the broadcast with one of their own, and the studio engineers wouldn't say, so they sat there all day until the police raided the station and arrested the Rasbunatori shortly before midnight. Carol II had them dragged to the scene of Kalinescu's murder, where army trucks mounted with huge floodlights had already surrounded the intersection, and the nine so-called Avengers were dropped to their knees. A crowd gathered to watch as the Rasbunatori were shot, one by one, in the back of the head with their own guns. As the first light of dawn broke, a banner was hung between two of the towering floodlights, which read, From now on this shall be the fate of those who betray the country. The site was left as is, with nine traders rotting in the street for over a week. During this time, 242 known Iron Guardsmen were rounded up and executed without trial. Hundreds of others fled to Germany. A year later, the Iron Guard would return from the shadows for a bout of revenge, blowing open Kalinescu's crypt in Curtia to Argus with dynamite, destroying Kalinescu's remains along with those of his family. And on the anniversary of Kalinescu's assassination, a bronze bust of the former prime minister, intended to be unveiled in his hometown of Potesti, was stolen, chained to a car bumper, and dragged through the street until it resembled little more than a buffeted bronze scrap. It must have been really light. Or that car must have had some really good torque. Why? Because, I mean, like, my car wouldn't be able to, depending on how big the statue is. I'm thinking, like... It's just a bust. Oh, it's just a bust. Yeah. Just kidding. The period between September 1939 and May 1940 is known as the Phony War. Because war had been declared between the Allies and Axis powers, yet neither side had begun to do anything. It was a period where the name-calling preceded the clout, and neither side was ready to battle despite saying that the time had come. During this period, Germany pressed to get as much oil from Romania as they could squeeze out of Carol II, while Britain and France tried to undermine the relationship, going so far as sending sneaky boys into Romania to tamper with the oil refineries and the transportation system that brought the oil north. All that this really accomplished, though, was the turning of Carol II against the Allies, who he realized could no longer be trusted and that Romania was as much a pawn for France and Britain as it was for Germany or the Soviet Union. It was all about the oil. Ain't that familiar? <laughs> In response, Carol II addressed his nation over the airwaves, saying that Romania is still safe, still neutral, thanks to him, but to keep it this way, further defenses needed to be established on Romania's northern borders and at its oil fields. In order to achieve this countrywide defensive line, taxes would have to increase. The address ended with a surely you understand kind of elongated remark, like, it's for our best interest, we need to band together, etc, etc. But the Romanian people didn't quite trust him. They still saw Carol II as the recluse king who married a young, money-grubbing Jewish peasant bitch, lived in twelve different castles, took long vacations to Paris, and yacht excursions to Istanbul, and the like. The way they saw it, Carol II was calling for higher taxes so he could inflate his Swiss bank accounts, and the so-called country-long defensive line he was talking about was a farce. Riffing on France's eastern border wall, which had inspired Carol II's plan, the people called this proposed bulwark the Imaginal Line, which I think is pretty clever, because France's border with uh, Germany had been called the Maginot Line. Hmm. 
it was like a bunch of fortresses and artillery pieces that uh, never got used because the Germans went through the forest where there was no Maginot Line. Obviously, they're going to go through the gap that doesn't have the Maginot Line. Fucking idiots, France. Jesus, fuck. They tr oh, the trees are too thick for them to get through. I don't know. Is there space between two trees? Yes. They will find a way. Plus, they have fucking tanks. Yeah, they France. have fucking tanks. Well, I mean, did they know they had tanks at the time that they made the Maginot Line? Yes. Then Fra France! France! Why do you think that they're just going to be super fucking lazy and not go through the forests? I would have everybody at all the borders if there was enough people. Oh, I thought you said Olive Gardens. <laughs> no. I would have everybody at Olive Garden. Because <laughs> when you're here, we're family. <laughs> you can't kill family. You can't kill family. You can't I don't kill know. Family. I can pull up a bunch of articles. Shh. I know. I just listened to um, a morbid podcast. A side note. Listen to morbid podcasts. They're fucking amazing. Um, I just listened to the morbid podcast podcast episode about um the lawson family murders whole dude this whole dude a whole i don't fuck all hundred percent of this man this was just me whole dude this, this guy killed his entire family except for one son on christmas day did they already open presents no oh it was the 1920s. They didn't have presents. Oh. But his daughter had already made a Christmas cake, and they never got to eat it. There's a tradition of making cake on Christmas? I mean, it seems like it from that story and, like, or that, that our, you know, that episode. I feel like we should start making fucking cake on Christmas. I had it imagined, wait, wait, wait. like, a spice cake with, like, a white frosting. Okay, that does sound good. But what about, um... Fruitcake? Potizza. Potizza. Well, that's not really a cake. That's a pastry. Yeah, Slovenian, Slovenian. round raisin yeah. bread yeah. with nuts. Yeah. I would have known if you had said the Slovenian bread that John makes. It's a, the family potizza. Yes. Because you need a whole family to make a fucking make potizza. A potizza. Yeah. No, this was just a cake. I wonder, I don't know if they have any pictures of the cake, but apparently the cake was pretty famous. The one cake? Yeah, because, like, the girl had made the cake, they didn't get to eat it, and then there were raisins on top of the cake, because it was the 1920s, and they were, like, you know, masochistic. And so, not that I don't like raisins, but on top of a fucking cake, let's get real. Unless it's a spice cake. Unless it's a spice cake, true, in which case raisins on top of a spice cake is actually fucking bomb.com. But... So anyway, people came to the murder house because their uncle was like, this is a great tourist attraction, which I would have gone to. I would have paid the 25 cents to go to this murder house and see the murders. So anyway, they would like take the raisins as a souvenir. And so they had to put a cover on the cake. And this murder house tour thing was open for five years and they kept the cake there the whole time. And then somebody finally purchased the cake and then uh, buried it with the daughter that made the cake. Man, I have a bunch of comments. One, why would you purchase five-year-old cake? Two, why would you bury it? Like, that's just... Weird. Don't. Three, if you go into a murder house, why are you taking souvenirs that are raisins? Cause like, it... ooh, I'm going to take this one raisin. What, you're going to show, like, your grandkids? Hey, you see this shriveled up, rotted raisin? <laughs> it's from the cake in a murder house. Wow, Grandpa, I don't give a hot 
dick about your stupid old raisin. You're a stupid old raisin, Grandpa. Oh, poor Grandpa! Also, if you had a murder house, why keep the cake? It was a huge... It was, it was like, to show that, like, that's how fresh... Like how it's no longer fresh. Early the murders were. No, like like how... Because, like, they woke up in the morning. The girl made the cake. She went to go bring it to her aunt's house. And then her dad murdered everyone. You guys should look up... But it's not about the cake. It's not about... You the could cake. just say it happened in the morning. Yeah, but, I mean, it's a fucking piece. God damn, just enjoy the fucking cake. I want cake! I want cake! God damn it! I want cake! <laughs> Honey, why is the baby on fire? Buy me more jewelry! <laughs> we got off topic. Uh, on top of the way that the king handled avenging Kalinescu with the killings of the Rasbunatori, which most Romanians disagreed with, only because the assassins weren't given due process, public opinion was turning against Carol II. With his greatest advisor now dead, Carol II was only listening to himself. And as good of intentions as he may have had, he was still acting brashly, cruelly, and selfishly. Then, when Germany invaded France in May of 1940, Carol II decided the wind could blow no harder than it already was, and he committed himself to the Axis. <sighs> Fucking dick. As you may recall, however, Romania had long been Francophile, so this appeared to even the centrist Romanians as a betrayal of kin. Meanwhile, the liberals were appalled, the communists were begrudging, the fascists were ingracious, and the ethnic Germans were placated, with the near entirety of Romania either reviling Carol II as a spiraling tyrant, or loathing him as a petty opportunist. As if to confirm the concerns of the latter group, Carol II began reaching out to the remnants of the Iron Guard, extending fucking olive branches, convincing himself that he could tame the belittled fascist faction and mold it into a new tool, a new government that could keep him in public favor. After Belgium surrendered to the Nazis at the end of May 1940, Carol II told his advisors that Germany was victory-bound and Romania needed to, as Ron Weasley once said, sort out their priorities to realign... <laughs> what? <laughs> She, she needs to sort out her priorities. She really needs to sort out her priorities. I don't know. That was like my like. That was one of the things I used to say to like train myself to do a British accent. I used to. Well, I used to. Say, um, my name is Ronald Weasley, and I love chocolate frogs. That was how I like always started to. Because I fucking love Ron Weasley. Because he's the fucking bee's knees. Apparently God, he's a gingers. Really nice guy who didn't want fame. Oh, Rupert Grant. Yeah. That makes sense. Poor Rupee. Rupee. I think he has a baby now. Oh, nice. I know. Wait, wait, wait. He has a baby or he is a baby? I think he has a baby. Benjamin Beasley. I love him. I love Rupert Grant. I'm glad that you have someone to love. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from cute, adorable Hitler. <laughs> it's his mustache. Get over it. Uh, so Carol too wanted to realign Romania's policies with Hitler. Because uh, daddy is so superficial, he'll pick his favorite son based on how much the kid resembles himself. So Carol II renamed his despotic National Renaissance Front to the more fascist-sounding Party of the Nation. Oh yeah. yeah, we're having party a big for party the for the nation. It's the whole nation. Oh, it's the birthday. 
Carol II's switching of his party name to the fascist-sounding Party of the Nation was a purposeful cryptonesia, if not a direct homage to Courtney Quadrino's Everything for the Country political party, and the Party of the Nation welcomed former legionnaires into its fold on the condition that Carol II adopt strict anti-Semitic policies, which he did. And when France conceded to Hitler's advances, surrendering on June 21st, 1940, the Francophile elite of Romania appeared just as weak and malleable in the eyes of the fence-sitters that whoever wasn't already on board with the pro-German, pro-Nazi, pro-fascist party of the nation Iron Guardian government became, well, on board. Carol II got what he wanted, a brief boost of public opinion, but at what cost? Kalinescu's replacement was Georgi Tatarescu, who had been prime minister before, for the three years preceding Octavian Goga's fish-eyed fascist stint. Tatarescu was a lifelong liberal, a staunch anti-communist, and rather indifferent about fascism, which I think is kind of odd. Fascism seems to be something you can't quite sit on the fence about, because it's, it, it is a you're-either-with-us-or-against-us kind of philosophy. But, I mean, I got, I'm not Georgi Tatarescu, so... And I don't look like an alcoholic tax accountant, and I've never been prime minister. Uh, so... If there is one thing Tedorescu and I agreed on, it, it would be that Soviets are subhumans. That's a good thing to say on a podcast that could be listened to by Soviets. Well, I mean, not, you know what I mean. Not Soviets, but... <laughs> to be fair, uh, Soviets gleefully purged anyone too smart or too talented to pose a threat, leaving behind only the driveling, dumb, ugly meatbags of the former Russian Empire. Hmm. Meat bags. Yeah. So it really must have pained Georgi Tatarescu when, on uh, June 26, 1940, Joseph Stalin delivered an ultimatum to his office. Either Romania surrender the Bessarabia and Bukovia regions and do so within two days' time, or the Soviet Union would invade and take them by force. Hot. No. <laughs> Blindsided is a good word here. Another good word would be futile, or forlorn, or fucked. No. Completely hot. fucked. Hot. hot. Ooh. Hot. 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 hot in Topeka. My toe is hot? Dig it. Topeka's hot? My toe is hot? Pretty good. The Soviets were making good on the fine print in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and Hitler was not answering his phone calls, leaving Carol too to shit his pants for two days, as Georgi Tatarescu weighed and measured and calculated how long Romania could hold out in a war against the Soviet Union, concluding each time that an invading army with a larger population than Romania, with more tanks than Romania had cars, would win in every scenario. There was no saving Bessarabia. So, on the eve of Stalin's invasion, Tatarescu phoned Vyacheslav Molotov and agreed to Stalin's demands, ceding the 20,000 square miles and its nearly 4 million inhabitants to the Soviet Union. A week later, on August 2nd, 1940, the Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic was incorporated as a new protectorate of the Soviet Union, and the communists brought to Moldavia their unique brand of persecution, complete with the collectivization of assets, deportations of undesirables, and a quiet genocide. Oh, that's lovely. Everyone loves a good, quiet, I was gonna genocide. say, a quiet genocide. It sounds beautiful until you know what genocide means, and then it's terrifying. Is that when you bring your friend Jen inside? No. For tea and crumpets. 
Inspired by the ease with which the Soviet Union reclaimed Bessarabia, Romania's ancient nemesis Bulgaria piped up for the first time in decades and demanded the return of Dobruja, which had had lost its claim to in 1913. And after a series of talks, Tedarescu did grant them the southern half of Dobruja. Miklos Horthy, noticing the trend of biting into Romania, demanded that Kerl II return the whole of Transylvania to Hungary, which Kerl II was in no mood to do, particularly given the ethnic pertinence and geographic magnitude of Transylvania to Romania. If surrendering Bessarabia was like cutting off an ear or a couple fingers, surrendering Transylvania would be like cutting off everything south of the navel. Miklos Horthy pressed Kerl II with the threat of invasion, going so far as amounting forces, at which point Hitler and Benny the Duke again got involved, cooling tensions, and certainly keeping a B-plot, Hungarian-Romanian war, from erupting in the summer of 1940. Hitler didn't do it without his reasons. Obviously, he was protecting Romania's oil, because he literally needed all of it if he wanted to invade the Soviet Union next year. And he couldn't risk Hungary destroying the oil fields in a pitiful attempt at stealing a couple pretty valleys from Romania, had Carol II not been playing games with Hitler's heart, maybe Hitler would have more strongly favored Romania's interests, but Hitler personally loathed Carol II, particularly for being an opportunist and not committing to the Axis early on, instead jerking Germany around for pennies on the dollar while waiting for the wind to shift. Whatever inkling Hitler had of Carol II's playing both sides was revealed in the fall of France, when the Nazis strolled into the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Paris and found folders of correspondence with the king and prime minister of Romania about snitching on and betraying the Axis whenever the Allies were ready to make their move. Behind Stalin, Hitler was the prevailing world leader in the field of hating double-crossers. Still, he needed that sweet, sweet oil, so the negation of a Hungarian-Roman war wasn't cleanly settled on with a handshake, but it also wasn't settled with a coup. No. Instead, on August 30th, 1940, German and Italian officials decided that the northern half of Transylvania would go to Hungary, while the southern half would stay with Romania. Both sides hated the decision, but neither had the choice to reject it. For surrendering Bessarabia to the Soviet Union, and the better half of Jabruja to their mortal enemies, the Bulgarians, Georgi Tatarescu resigned from his prime ministership, in shame, so that a more resilient government could be installed. Carol II had more or less pinned the losses on Tatarescu, even though they were out of his hands. Gotta blame someone. Tedarescu retreated into solitude, writing condemnations of successive regimes, while the other political parties poo-pooed him until the end of the Second World War when he represented Romania at the Paris Peace Conference from July to October 1946. When the communists invaded Romania a few months later, Georgi Tedarescu was arrested for being among the quote-unquote capitalist gentry. He confirmed their decision, saying, Taking in view my attitudes toward mankind, society, property, I am not a communist and he was held in the notorious Seaget prison outside Bucharest, alongside dozens of Romanian luminaries, including longtime communist and three-time prime minister Iliu Maniu and longtime liberal Georgi I. Britanniu, the son of the founder of the National Liberal Party, who doubled as a knockoff Michael Stuhlbarg. In Seaget prison, Georgi Tedarescu contracted tuberculosis, and he suffered a slow death, finally succumbing to the disease in 1957 at the age of 70. Still in the prison? Yes. Tedarescu's replacement as prime minister was Jan Gagertu, who, before 1940, was minister of public works and communications. You may recall Jan Gagertu as a friend of Hermann Göring's, or as the man whose house played negotiation table to Octavian Goga and Corny Kudrenu, 
before Carroll II banned all political parties outside of his own. Gregertu was no politician. He was a racist, multi-millionaire businessman who loved Germany and hated Jews. Hmm. What, 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 are, you, what are you saying hmm for? Huh? Just... You drawing parallels you don't want to talk about? Drawing parallels that I will keep for a private conversation, but I think, I think y'all know what I'm throwing down. Gegertu affiliated with Goga's National Christian Party once upon a time and briefly funded Corny's Iron Guard, but he was no politician. He had connections and friends and people who owed him favors, but he was no politician. He hated minorities because he needed someone to hate because he hated himself. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he wore a monocle for the sake of fashion, not because he needed it. This man wanted so badly to be a Nazi but his genetics were so firmly rooted in the Serbian corner of Romania that there was no point in trying to prove otherwise. Like Adolf Hitler, his idol, he hated where he came from, and he projected his hatred on that which reminded him of where he came from, and this led him toward anti-Semitism and fascism, because he was a vertically challenged coward with an inferiority complex. Young Gutu was fast-tracked into the prime ministership only because Hitler liked him. And getting back in Hitler's good graces was Carol II's futile attempt at keeping Romania from losing any more of its land. Sorry, my ass like, hurts so bad. It's like cramping. Do you want ten of those? And Carol II continued to make appeasements toward Hitler, appointing the last of the Iron Guard, the bastard executioner Horia Sima, as the fucking Minister of Arts and Culture. Carol II also signed a new economic deal that made Nazi Germany the sole purchaser of Romanian oil, meaning Hitler could have as much as he wanted so long as he paid for it. Five days after Jan Gagurtu was made prime minister, July 9th, 1940, Carol II imprisoned his most powerful critic, General Jan Antonescu, for the crime of treachery. Antonescu, who personally had to command Romanian forces in the retreat from Bessarabia, believed Carol II's losses were avoidable and cowardly, and he called the king out on his bullshit. Carol II answered back with intentions to have Antonescu executed. But Germany's ambassador in Bucharest, Wilhelm Fabrikcheese, and Hitler's man about the Balkans, Hermann Neubacher, talked Carol II out of it, saying that another night of the vampires, like how he got rid of Corny Codreno, or even so much as a trial, would make Hitler a very unhappy person, considering how Antonescu was one of Nazi Germany's biggest proponents in Romania. So, two days later... Carol II had Jan Antonescu unimprisoned, and instead placed under house arrest at the Bistria Monastery, hanging out with monks. You know, just jacking off with monks, cutting up brown cloth and making little like pasties out of them. I don't think that's what them to the nip and nips. That's not what monks do. I don't know. So who was Jan Antonescu? Well. Born in 1882, Antonescu was an army brat turned careerist who first made waves in 1907 in suppressing the Peasants' Revolt and later cemented his statue with his service in the First World War. For as apolitical as a military ought to be, Jan Antonescu was always a far-rightist. He was deeply anti-Semitic, making allies with Goga's National Christian Party, and he was a fervent fascist, which made him friends with the Iron Guard. When Goga was prime minister, Antonescu served as his defense minister, Aroli continued under Eli Christia until Kalinescu told him to fuck off back to the barracks. Jan Antonescu was one of many high-profile guests at Cornicodrano's trial to give glowing praise of the accused. And in my honest opinion, Antonescu looks like if Dan Florek, aka Captain Donald Cragen from the Law & Order franchise, 
had a child with Mr. Tippy, the sippy cup that terrorized Tommy in an <laughs> early episode of Rugrats. Oh, God. That's a horrifying combination. Drink me. No. Drink me. No. Love that episode. Gosh, bite. Did you know that the guy who voiced Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame was Mr. or Mr. Dr. Lipschitz? Did not know that. Mm-hmm. You would know that. Calls him as a season. Bessarabia and Dobruja were losses, yes, but drops in the bucket compared to losing the better half of Transylvania. That's like if England and France quietly brokered a deal between a squabbling United States and Mexico, then came out of the boardroom and announced that the United States would be ceding the American Southwest to Mexico. Sure, we still have a lot of our land to ourselves, but also, what the fuck? Say we lost everything south of Utah and Oklahoma, split in California just north of Bakersfield. We'd lose all of Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Albuquerque, El Paso, Dallas, Houston, uh, San Antonio, all their populations, all their industry, all their culture, and the Southwest is still not as great a percentage as what Romania lost, with half of Transylvania going to Hungary. Naturally, the remaining Romanians were pissed, largely feeling betrayed and robbed, and hopelessly unable to have stopped it. Overnight, half of Transylvania became Hungarian. Can you imagine waking up tomorrow as a resident of New England and finding out that you now lived in Canada because Angela Merkel said so? I would be pretty pissed. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be. It wouldn't be too bad given how fast America is going downhill. Uh, counter, say you woke up one day as a lifelong resident of Quebec City, and you found out you were now an American. So I would be confused if that were to happen, but I would love to be a Canadian. However, if I was Canadian and then I woke up and found out I was American, I'd be kind of pissed off. Like, maybe I don't want to be Canadian. I wouldn't mind being Canadian, though. Canada's really dope. dope. Well, yeah, it's dope, huh? <laughs> Pitter patter, let's get at her. Okay. Um, A boot. <sighs> you can finish laughing, it's okay. <laughs> Among Romania's furious was Jan Antonescu, who was still under house arrest in a rural monastery, taking hot baths with monks or whatever they do down there. I've never met a monk. Despite being under lock and key of the local Frock and Friar Confederation, Antonescu was able to get word back and forth to Wilhelm Fabrikcheese, Hitler's ambassador in Bucharest, to whom he promised to slash the oil deal prices in half so long as the Third Reich endorsed his actions in the coming days. Well, Fabric Cheese didn't trust Antonescu, telling his boss, I'm not convinced that he is a safe man. The German foreign ministry agreed to the terms, given how much a threat he posed to Carol II's reign. Concurrently, Antonescu was writing to Horio Speedwagon regarding the clout of the Iron Guard, as well as the logistics of orchestrating a coup d'etat. I have some nerves to poop. (laughs) Sorry. smelled like opening up a can of beans. It was weird. Opening a can of beans, that's a good way to put it. I should have thought of that. Anyway, then there was Antonescu's correspondence with Jan Gagertu, uh, wherein Antonescu suggested that the Prime Minister resign so as to create a power vacuum, through which Hitler could force a panicking Carol II to appoint a more popular person to the role, such as, (laughs) I don't know, how about General Antonescu? Technically, both men were of the Romanian elite, but as a career soldier, Antonescu had the appearance of still being a common man. 
unlike Agurtu, who, for all his beloved hate-mongering, could not shake his image as a unqualified multimillionaire. Then there was the wildest correspondence of all, that with the co-founder of the National Peasants' Party, Ilyumanu. On the surface, these two were enemies, with conflicting ideologies, but where the brass tacks came down in the first week of September 1940 was that Carol II had got to go, and it was on this basis that the two spoke as gentlemen, working together on the formalities of regicide. On September 3rd, Alice Sturza, a socialite and theater actress, traveled to Bistria Monastery on behalf of Ilyumanu, who she knew through their shared political affiliation. Brief tangent, uh, Alice Sturza had risen to prominence as an actress in the early 1920s, when Europe was undergoing a boom in cultural expression, the style we call modernism, which was essentially a mass search for beauty and purpose in response to the senseless tragedies of the First World War. And Alice graced the stages of Romania with a company of flamboyant, unbridled artists, writers, poets, thespians, performing avant-garde and nonconformist pieces, written largely by Benjamin Fundoianu, the company's most prolific poet. Benjamin, who went by B, was born in Jassy, northwest Romania, and raised in a Jewish household. He was an avid reader, but a poor student, easily distracted by the world outside the classroom, the mountains, and the meadows, and the older girls. For example, his first dalliance with the fairer sex was at the age of 12, when he courted and rolled with an 18-year-old girl. Fucking player! Yeah. He's a player. She's a, um, questionable. My first kiss was with an 18-year-old boy at 12. Like I said, so you're the player, (laughs) and he is highly questionable. An 18-year-old should not be macking a 12-year-old. Yeah. You know, like, looking back on it, it's fucking weird. Yeah. Like, really weird. Yeah, you should look up that guy and see if he's in jail yet for similar <laughs> offenses. He was in jail because he stabbed someone. <laughs> he's a really nice guy, though. He just had a mental breakdown. He had, like, a really low part in his life. I'm pretty sure some shit happened. But, but, but. The trauma of others does not validate their abuse towards someone else. So, It is important to mention that. Yes. B had the kind of mind, soul, and temperament that suggested he was too old for his body, too sophisticated for his peers. During Romania's neutral years, B grew to become an insightful intellectual, interested by life's questions and possibilities, detailing much of this in symbolistic poetry he wrote in and around Bucharest. When the Central Powers invaded in 1917, B fled home to Jassy, where many Bucharesti elite followed. Among them was the symbolist poet uh, Jan Minolescu and his wife, whom B had idolized for many years. Minolescu offered to host B at his apartment, and thus the seasoned poet took B under his wing, teaching him free verse and playwriting and enthralling him with tales of Paris. When the war ended, both returned to Bucharest, finding that some of the city had crumbled, homes had been looted, and family members had died. Raised Jewish, existentialism came naturally to be, but these pointless, war-born casualties inspired him to seek truths in moving to Paris, where he learned the term and philosophy of existentialism, instilling it in his plays and poetry. In Paris, he surrounded himself with eccentrists and dadaists, watching from the wings as new avant-garde styles like 
Surrealism, neoplasticism, art deco, and experimental cinema all took their first breaths. B infused these gleams into his own work, importing surrealism back home to Romania. Surrealism being the art form best known through the works of Salvador Dali, in paintings like The Persistence of Memory, with its iconic melting clocks, photographs like Dali Atomicus, with its airborne water and cats, and short films like Un Chien Andalou, with its match cut comparing the slitting of an eyeball to the passing of clouds by a full moon. The written word didn't reward B too well financially, and his parents wrote him consistently of their concerns, suggesting he become a lawyer, which he nearly acquiesced to, but his passion burned on. A peer of his, whom he met in Paris, only to realize they hailed from the same hometown, referred to B as the stooping green-eyed youth from Jesse, the standard bearer of the iconoclasts and rebels of the new generation. In 1928, B collaborated with Man Ray, a surrealist photographer often called the style's largest contributor after Dali. I thought he was the evil villain in... <laughs> In Spongebob. Ma, 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 Man Ray! Gets his name from that. Also, Man Ray, side note, uh, as a photographer, sure, he was, you know, groundbreaking, but as a man, uh, the guy was a pedophile. Moving on, Man Ray and Dali, uh, the twosome crafted what they called unfilmable screenplays, composed of wild photographs and dreamlike prose. I like to imagine that with today's technology, one could easily translate those once unfilmable screenplays to the silver screen. Nevertheless, B, however, uh, parlayed this and his various plays into a brief employment with Paramount Pictures, writing for early talking pictures. As his repertoire grew, so did his interests, and he traveled from Paris to Belgium and Switzerland, milking the minds of other artists and philosophers as he drove deeper into existentialism, querying the singular reason behind an endless string of whys. B was a man of boiling things down to their ether. Even his name, Benjamin Fondianu, was shortened down to its most essential character, B. Another peer of his, and one who tried long to sway him towards communism, referred to B as a Don Juan of the brain's lineage from God. Though he wasn't a Don Juan for long, marrying Genevieve Tissier in 1931. While he never took up communism, the rise of fascism made him quite the alarmist, preaching to Parisian and Romanian Jews alike that tomorrow in concentration camps, it will be too late. While the communists said pacifism was the only way to bypass the rise of fascism across Europe, as if you could ignore it and it would go away, B disagreed, decrying their parade of big words as cowardice and stupidity, and he transformed his literary career into a pulpit with essays like 1937's the Unhappy Consciousness, his main philosophical work, synthesizing the theories of Nietzsche, Freud, Kierkegaard, and others into one innovative volume. It was a massive success at the time of its publication, though it was lost for many years after World War II, until the early 70s, and since then scholars around the world have appraised it alongside the forebearers of existential philosophy, and I did my due diligence finding dozens of British master theses on the works of Benjamin Fondaine, the Frenchified surname, as he took in early into his Parisian residence. The Benjamin Fondaine Studies Society, founded in 1997, is responsible for cataloging much of B's work, and they host an annual workshop in the French village of Peyresque, between Marseille and the Alps. The Studies Society introduced B's unhappy consciousness by saying, For Fondaine, philosophy is not 
something like a verifier of weights and measures, but the very act by which the existent possesses his own existence, the very act of living, seeking within and outside himself, with or against the obvious, the possibilities of life. Fondaine advocates the mobilization of the individual against a real hostile. As long as reality is as it is, he wrote, in one way or another, by poem, by cry, by faith, or by suicide, man will testify to his irresignation, even if this irresignation is, or appears to be, absurdity or madness. Fondaine wanted to replace the reality of the philosophy of I know with that of the world where being itself is duration, life, mobility, and action. And isn't that truly the point? The Netflix original series Bojack Horseman takes a very same approach, that life is about living, not brooding on the past or worrying about the future. And it is the living of life that makes life worth living. B's works suggest a responsibility in living, specifically in living proactively, in defense of that which is threatened by an other. In his age, this irrepressible other was fascism. Today, our other is something similar, though the uniform isn't black and the rhetoric is less coherent. In 1939, with his marriage to Genevieve eight years deep and his permanent residence twice as long, B became a natural citizen of France. And horrible timing, too, because only a few weeks later France declared war on Germany, and he was drafted into the French army. <gasps> Fortunately, pushing the age of 32, B was only sent to the reserves, and he spent the period of the phony war penning the regimental gazette. However, Hitler crept through the Ardennes and surprised France with an invasion, and all hands were put on deck. B and the 216th Artillery Regiment were sent to the front lines, and on June 1940, days before France surrendered, B was captured and sent east as a prisoner of war. He escaped, however, and was recaptured, at which point his appendix ruptured, and he was shipped back to Paris for recuperation at which point the German army said they didn't want to deal with him anymore and left him in the hands of the occupying force, which kept him on a short leash and demanded he wear a yellow cloth Star of David pinned to his lapel to emphasize the fact that he was Jewish. Being the rebellious intellectual he was, B quickly decided to stop wearing the diminutive yellow star because fuck that noise, this whole shit is dumb. He fled Paris to disassociate his crimes from his lapsed Catholic and natural French wife to keep her safe, while he worked with the underground resistance, printing anti-Nazi pamphlets, essays, and prose. It was during this time that, while sneaking back and forth to Paris to recover his books, B met fellow Romanian poet turned Parisian philosopher Emile Choran, a self-obsessed nihilist and self-affirmed Hitlerist. Choran, 11 years B's junior, had followed the Iron Guard since its inception and had idolized Hitler since 1932, with early professions of love like there is no present-day politician that I see as more sympathetic and admirable than Hitler. Turan loved the idea of totalitarianism, saying in a 1960 book called History and Utopia that excess puts freedom at risk, and everyone is better off if they have nothing and nothing to worry about. Where the Iron Guard sought fascism as a means to forcibly return to traditionalism, Turan was petting the goat of the Nazi family, preaching urbanization and industrialization, an ideological clash that didn't break Choran so much as inspire him to move to Paris after getting his degree in Berlin. There he dove through existentialism straight into nihilism, the philosophy of pessimism, writing works such as On the Heights of Despair, Drawn and Quartered, The Temptation to Exist, and The Trouble with Being Born. 
I know. <laughs> in the in that one, he moped, quote, "Not to be born is undoubtedly the best plan of all. Unfortunately, it is within no one's reach." What a fucking emo loser! I was gonna say, Jesus. Christ. I hate this guy. Melodramatic Melanie over here. Emile Turan was the complete opposite of Benjamin Fundiano. Pessimist and optimist. Destroyer and creator. Coward and courageous. Authoritarian and artist. Rightist and leftist. Catholic and Jew. The only thing they really shared was a heritage. And for that I think it's worth noting the least gloomy and offensive of Turan's quotes. It is no nation we inhabit, but a language. Make no mistake. Our native tongue is our true fatherland. He had one cool quote. That was going to say, that's really beautiful. But he's a fucking mopey lion. Yeah, he's a mopey lion. He's not even a lion. He's a fucking... Yeah, he's, he's a... He's a quail. Not even a quail. He's a fucking mopey... Like, trout. He's a hagfish. He's a hagfish. He's a mongfish. A <gasps> big, sloppy, blubbery boy. Big mongfish. Big mongfish. Big mong. Big mong. And because I don't want to let a respectable image of Turan sit too long in your brain, here's another more characteristic quote. Without Bach, God would be a complete second-rate figure. Bach's music is the only argument proving the creation of the universe cannot be regarded as a complete failure. Okay, so is he, like, fucking, uh, Jaden Pickett-Smith? Wait, no, what, what? Is that, no, who's Will Smith's son? Jaden. Jaden, yeah. Jaden. Yeah. He's a, uh, they're both pompous crybabies. Uh, so now imagine having to teach and feed and raise Emile Turan as a baby. Ugh. Here's a fun fact. When he returned t- from college for a family visit in 1935, his mother told him, If I knew you were going to be so unhappy, I would have aborted you. Ha! <laughs> oh, that's great. His reply, in more verbose wor- wordage, was, uh, We're all accidents in birth. So it wouldn't have mattered if you did. Okay. But yeah, his, his mom ripped him. That's hilarious. Uh, one of Turan's favorite themes was the appeal of suicide, which he wrote often on, suggesting, Is it possible that existence is our exile, and nothingness our home? Note he wasn't speaking of an afterlife, but rather an anti-life, a sort of anywhere-is-better-than-here mentality. He ended up dying of Alzheimer's, so he probably never got around to suicide on account of losing all self-awareness, devolving like he always dreamed of I was into gonna a s- futile, hopeless, helpless, vegetative figurine. That's that was his dream. Yeah, he got what he wanted. You know, if he cared, if he wanted to not be alive so much, he should have fucking committed suicide at the way at the age of fifteen. Because the shit he ended up propagating was way worse than if he hadn't been alive at all. Why didn't he just like fucking? I mean, if I were him, I would have joined the army. When it comes to depression and shit. I think people should, you know, find a way to live through it. But when you're a son of a bitch like him, he should, he should, he... Alzheimer's was too good for a man like Emile Turan. I think there are some people in this world who, like, would be better off if they didn't exist. And he seems like the type. Uh, Shortly before he met B, Emile Turan had given a speech on Romanian radio praising the late Corny Codreno for, uh, quote, having given Romanians a purpose. In the 70s, he recanted his affections for the Iron Guard, saying, I found out what it means to be carried by the wave without the faintest trace of conviction. I am now immune to it. Oh. Oh, yeah, you're just like that. You're fucking immune to it, narcissistic blowhard cunt bitch. <laughs> no, I'm being mean, but I have my axe to grind, and here's where I get theoretical. 
1941, someone phoned the pointy-hatted constable and snitched on B, saying he was not only a Jew in hiding, but one working with the underground resistance. Nobody knows who snitched, but B was caught and arrested. I think it was Emil Turan. Please tell me B didn't die because of that. Decades later, Turan said he was friends with B when asked, but I don't believe it. I can understand being trying to relate to Turan, to see past their differences, to get to try and know him, to try and show him the light, but I cannot fathom for the life of me, Turan showing anything but petulant disgust or nigh-envious loathing towards B. B was everything Turan was not, and B had a great life despite his persecution, whereas Turan was constantly miserable, convinced he was a lone underdog despite having every advantage afforded to him. I honestly believe Turan tipped the Nazis off to B's whereabouts because B did bring Turan into his fold on the simple note that they were both of the same ilk, and B loved to relate to others. So, as it came in spring 1944, Benjamin Fondane was snatched up by the Gestapo and shipped east to the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration and death camps. He could have been saved uh, from this fate, as his marriage to Genevieve meant that he was not so easily purgeable, but she couldn't file for his release because she didn't know he had been taken. Hell, his friends in the underground didn't find out for two weeks where he had gone, and by that point, he was already at Auschwitz. He was able to get a letter to Genevieve, which he had written while in transit, uh, optimistically asking her to arrange his latest poems for future publication, as he was sure he'd return home soon, even going so far as to call himself the traveler who isn't done traveling. However, on October 2nd, 1944, when Birkenau was being evicted by the SS in anticipation of the Soviet Army's advance, B was among a group of 700 people hastily funneled into the gas chambers for a last-minute batch of genocide. A survivor of Auschwitz who had befriended B inside the camp said that B walked towards death with dignity and courage, even musing on the irony that his impending death was not only hours away from, but owed to, the camp's imminent salvation and ultimate allied victory. B's naked, lifeless body was heaved into an incineration pit of roaring flame, along with hundreds of others. A plaque now hangs outside the apartment B owned in Paris, and it reads, as quoted in French, just remember that I was innocent and that, just like you, mortals of that day, I too had a face marked by anger, by pity and joy. A face of a man, quite simply. Now if I may uh, briefly read a excerpt of a poem of Bees, an early poem from his first collection, 1930s uh, Privilesti, aka Landscapes, which was a favorite of former Prime Minister Armand Kalinescu. Uh, this poem, we... Taliar, or at Taliarchus, beautifies the inevitable demise of all living creatures and the opportunities we have to enjoy life while it lasts. Tomorrow, maybe, autumn will expand over the fields of grain, and autumn wine, us too, we may no longer drink. Tomorrow, maybe, the rivered eyed oxen will head for the Amaranth, so they may eavesdrop on the new germination, and then shadows arm in arm. We won't remember things. We might forget my wife and bitter wine. I might... Well, maybe you'll no longer be a monarch for the feasts. It's autumn. Drink your cup of wine. Well said, B. Well said, B. So on September 3rd, 1940, Alice Sturza, the avant-garde actress, traveled to Bistria Monastery on behalf of Ilya Maniu to spring Jan Antonescu from his imprisonment. There's no record of how she did it, but with the uh, 
recent territory losses, and the public demonstrations of anger that resulted, you could assume that his guard duty was rolled down to the minimum, in favor of more pressing matters. So I suppose if Alice chimed a lone guard or something long enough for Antonescu to slip out the back, well, that would explain how it went over so damn smoothly. The actress drove with him south, 200 miles, to Ploesti, a short ways north of Bucharest, where Antonescu convened with Manu for the night. Simultaneously and unrelated, Carol II's friend and lawyer Valer Pop was bending his ear, suggesting that replacing Jan Gagertu with a man like Jan Antonescu, despite his despicability, he was beloved by the public and the Iron Guard alike, and as Valer Pop added, Antonescu was a member of the elite, so it seemed highly unlikely that he'd go after the elite, even if he said he would. Which kind of reminds me of uh, Trump, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I'll drain the swamp. Cut to four months later and the swamp is bigger and all the places Trump wouldn't point his camera. What if what, what if we just take Bikini Bottom and push it somewhere else? <laughs> I mentioned Antonescu's elite stature earlier, and honestly, Valer Pop had a really good point, but with all the ironic happenstance of a Tarantino film, Antonescu was already positioned to take this post by force, and to do with the elite as he pleased. Uh, side note, Valer Pop would re- later regret this decision because he had married a Jewish woman in 1933 and adopted her daughter as his own. Then in 1944, he had to hide his wife and daughter in plain sight, passing them off as other people so that they wouldn't get deported to the Vapniarka concentration camp. He even admitted his mother-in-law to a hospital in Kluge under the care of a non-Jew doctor friend just to keep her from deportation. She wasn't sick, but she and the doctor friend had to pretend she was contagious until the war blew over. Valer Pop wouldn't skate by unnoticed forever, though, as he was later arrested by the communists and jailed alongside former Prime Minister Georgi Chaturescu in Siget Prison, dying eight years later. Aww. Yeah. See, here's where... Felt... Sorry, I just want to make mention. How, like, how is it? That when the war is over, people that were arrested for things like that didn't get released. A corrupt government taken over by a corrupt government is only corrupt in different ways. Sad. Uh, See, here's where Valer Pop's real regret comes in. He went behind Carol II's back and spoke with German ambassador Wilhelm Fabrikcheese, explaining the unsteady nature of Carol II's reign, how Carol II knew it, and how the appointment of someone like Jan Antonescu to the prime ministership could appease the public, the Iron Guard, and the Third Reich, even at the expense of Carol II's own comfort. This would hurt his friendship with the king, Valer Pop knew, but a small appeasement could keep the regime afloat during these harried times of fear and war. Might I remind you, sweet innocent audience, that appeasement, while technically an option, is never an option. (laughs) For anyone who's seen Breaking Bad, you may recall Mike Ehrmantraut telling Walter White, No have measures, Walt. No fucking half measures. Walt. (laughs) But maybe, maybe Valer Pop had done a good thing, because Antonescu was taking power regardless. The same day Antonescu was sprung, September 3rd, Mario Speedwagon, Horiosima, remember the, uh, the now acting Minister of Arts and Culture, took 500 Iron Guardians to the streets of Brazov, Constanta, and Bucharest, exchanging gunfire with police for a few hours before half of them were arrested. Sima was among those that fled to safety, and uh, in the wake of these planned rallies gone violent, Young Gertu met with Carol II that night and said basically, I don't want to do this anymore. 
I allowed other nations to take Romania's land, and now the people are mad at me. And, uh... I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm so fucking sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, what are you wearing? Now Carol too had violent mobs in the streets and no prime minister to address or handle the mounting unrest. So I imagine he didn't really sleep that night. Uh, the next day, September 4th, was when Jan Antonescu was going to storm the Bastille and present himself with other party leaders like Ilium Manu behind him as a great position as, as a great fit for the new position. Instead, Valer Pop beat him to the punch and suggested to Wilhelm Fabric Cheese the exact plan that these conspirators had been brewing all along. So instead of the big charade, Fabric Cheese phoned Carol II and simply said, Hitler wants Antonescu. Carol II, fearing stroking Hitler's ire any further, immediately conceded, saying Antonescu could be appointed the next day if he's able. Calls were made to the Bistrio Monastery, but funny enough, Antonescu wasn't there, which I imagine was the most hot-faced moment of that guard's life. Him sitting at a small metal desk, head in hand, trying to explain how the one guy who didn't look like a monk and the one guy he was supposed to watch was now nowhere to be found. Then Carol too was informed by the guards outside that they'd found John Antonescu. I imagine it was a Wes Anderson-esque moment where the camera... That's what I was thinking, <laughs> Wes Anderson. <laughs> the, the camera close on Carol too as the guards off screen say, uh, we found him, and Carol too turns his head away from the camera, likely you know, played by Jason Schwartzman with an absurdly <laughs> small crown, and he asks, Oh, really? Then pauses. Where? And the guard quietly says, He's in the foyer. Then Jason Schwartzman, as Carol too, turns back around toward the camera, staring straight into it, no expression on his face, and he says, This is upsetting. <laughs> then after a brief pause, he, he sprints off screen. So... There was John Antonescu outside the Royal Palace in Bucharest on Victory Avenue, climbing out of a car with Dinu Bertanu, the National Liberal Party's founder's brother and representative, and Ilyu Manu, co-founder of the National Peasants' Party, and their representative. They strode into the palace, down the Great Hall, and into the throne room, where Curl II was perched uneasily on his Baroque chair. Antonescu here is portrayed by J.K. Simmons, really leaning into his grumpy face, exasperated almost, Beset in Symmetry by Manny Patinkin's silent cameo as Dinu Britanu, and Edward Norton's mousy portrayal of Ilyu Manu, with Norton as Manu taking the occasional step forward toward the camera when emphasizing Antonescu's points, only to retreat repeatedly as J.K. Simmons gives him a stifled silent treatment. I don't know who Bruce Willis would portray, but Tilda Swinton could defy age and gender to portray Horiosima, which I think would be pretty cool, actually. And Bill Murray could be, uh, I mean, he has, I don't know, Corny Cudrenu, uh, even though it's not, like, the best casting. It, it's a Wes Anderson movie, so it's gotta have Bill Murray. It's gotta have Bill Murray in it. Uh, and as long and... as the shots are symmetrical and the outdated production design is clean and pastel-colored, you, you don't really need much else. That's, you know, those are his movies. I'm glad Tilda Swinton makes a, an appearance. She has, she has to be. She has to be. a kick-ass Horio Speedwagon. <laughs> I'm not even making a joke anymore. I love Tilda Swinton. I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Antonescu approached and said, uh, Your subjects are revolting. In the streets, chomping at the bit to come in here and gut you. Your kingdom is surrounded by hostile nations, and your friends have all abandoned you. Your greatest ally right now is also your greatest threat, and when the time is right, he'll march in here and take what's left of Romania for himself. 
You need a prime minister who can set things straight and keep the dogs behind the fence. You and I both know I'm the best chance for Romania, even if it wounds your pride. But you have no other choice, and I've got the heads of all three major political parties standing beside me. Jason Schwartzman here leans over the arm of the chair to peer around J.K. Simmons, seeing only the two men with him. He asks, Where's Seema? And Simmons waits, looks away, and retorts, Does it matter? <laughs> Carol, too, bit his lip, weighing all of his one options, and accepted Antonescu's proposal. So on September 5th, 1940, Carol II appointed Jan Antonescu, the general, as the new prime minister of Romania. Under duress, Carol II also transferred his dictatorial powers, thus yielding command of the party of the nation and the nation itself to Antonescu, leaving Carol II as little more than an honorary monarch. This wasn't enough, however, as Antonescu feigned anger hours later, storming into Carol II's bedroom to say that he got wind of two loyalist generals plotting to kill him. As revenge for crippling Carol II's stature, and for the apparent gall of those two generals, Antonescu saw it necessary that Carol II make amends by abdicating the throne in favor of his now 18-year-old son, Michael. Carol II could see through the ruse, but he'd already lost the throne for all it was worth. So he simply obliged. So, on September 6th, 1940, Michael was crowned King of Romania. Again. The first time being, as you may recall, when he was six years old. Michael's first act was to declare the monarchy strictly ceremonial, while bestowing the title of Conducator to Antonescu. Conducator meaning leader of the people. It's Romania's version of Der Führer, or Il Duce, intentionally meant to align Antonescu with the other fascist dictators. As expected, Antonescu's first act as conducator was to suspend Carol II's constitution and grant the former king and his Jewish mistress, the Red Queen Magda Lupescu, safe passage out of Romania, on toward self-exile. The two boarded a largely empty train, with only their loyal servant in tow, and a few hurriedly packed suitcases, and they departed quietly into the night. Some Iron Guardians were surprised to find out that the king had left, as they had waited for the deposed Carol II to make a public appearance, whereupon the Iron Guard could seek their overdue revenge for the murder of Corny Cudrenu. A platoon of Iron Guardians posted near the Romanian border were phoned and dispatched to meet the train, which they did, chasing it down and firing freely into the cabins with pistols and rifles. Nobody was hit, however, and when the Iron Guardians depleted their ammunition, they turned around and drove home. Carol II had lost everything. Palaces, castles, soldiers and maids, banners and fanfare, powers and esteem. But he may have had the last laugh. As you may recall the first days of the single-party state, when the treasury was put in Carol II's name. That's right, Romania's national coffers had been largely redirected to the king's personal bank account in Switzerland, from which he pulled whatever funds he needed to allocate. Jan Antonescu did not know this, and even if he had, nothing short of invading Switzerland could have convinced those banks to cough up another man's account access. So, even though he was exiled from Romania, Carol II was leaving with his pockets full, and over 80% of the country's financial wealth went with him, something the Antonescu regime would discover too little too late. Carol II and Magda Lupescu traveled west, stopping in the Alps to certify their bank holdings and continuing to London by air, wherefrom they relocated to Mexico City, waited until the war died down, then returned to Europe to settle into a luxurious mansion on the Portuguese Riviera, on a strip of beach that's still known today as the most expensive property in all of the Iberian Peninsula. The twosome were married in a destination wedding in Rio de Janeiro on June 3rd of 1947, with Magda rechristening herself as Princess Elena von Hohenzollern. 
neither Carol II nor his supposed princess bride were ever regarded as royalty again by their native Romanians, even after the war. Attempts to be reconsidered the king were futile, as his estranged son Michael was still seen as the legitimate monarch. The last time father and son saw one another was on the day of the former's abdication and the latter's coronation. Carol II had tried writing to his son, but Michael saw no point in reconnecting with the man who had ameliorated his mother, Helen of Greece, with so many lurid affairs and the eventual divorce. Carol II died of a heart attack in 1953 at the age of 59, and the Red Queen followed him to the grave 24 years later. King Michael attended neither funeral, and both were buried in a Portuguese cemetery. In 2019, however, their remains were unearthed and returned to Romania, where they were buried in a joint plot in Curtia de Argus, a village west of Bucharest, whose claim to fame is the world record for the fastest rainfall, 8.1 inches in 20 minutes, <laughs> as recorded on July 7th, 1947, the same day as the first whispered report of the Project Mogul balloon crash in Roswell, New Mexico. Coincidence? You heard it here first, folks. Aliens control our weather. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and say that's not true. It's autumn 1940. Romania is under new leadership. The fascist regime of General Jan Antonescu and the thrice cut down country has officially aligned itself with Nazi Germany. Will this work out? Well, no, but we'll find out why in our next episode, part three of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. Bum bum. We still haven't met Nicolae Ceausescu himself, but that is soon to come, as it is Antonescu's dictatorship that throbs like a magnet, sucking toward Romania all the evils of World War II and the subsequent Soviet invasion. If you're interested by the dissonant 20th century ideologies and the survival of only liberalism, I'd recommend a 2018 book review from The New Yorker called Francis Fukuyama Postpones the End of History, which summarizes the author's studies on the politics of resentment and the forecasting of revolutions. I'll link to it in the description. If you're interested in more like this podcast, but you like to read, check out openarticle.xyz. As for the episode, we hope you enjoyed listening to our bloated monologues and our giddy whispers. This is Chris. This is Leah. With long story short. Signing signing off. off. so hard to see she weighs 243 i hope she doesn't get much fatter but if she does that doesn't matter kitty from kansas city now there's a girl that i adore she's so dumb she doesn't know a thing why she thinks that july the fourth is an english king i love her i love her that's easy to see it's kansas city kitty for me but she's so dumb she gives me an awful cramp. Why she thinks that an Israelite is an electric lamp. I love her, I love her, that's easy to see. It's Kansas City Kitty for me.